I'm Gracie Mae Bradley and welcome to the Locating Legacies series created by the Stuart Hall Foundation, produced by Pluto Press and funded by Arts Council England. On the last episode of Locating Legacies, I spoke with Olafemi Otaiwo about identity politics and opportunities and obstacles it creates for organising across difference. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Vijay Prashad. Vijay is Executive Director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, a movement-driven research institution based in Argentina, Brazil, India and South Africa. He is also the chief editor of Left Word Books and a senior non-resident fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. He's a Marxist historian and writer, and his latest publications include The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan and the Fragility of US Power with Noam Chomsky, and Struggle Makes Us Human, Learning from Movements for Socialism. Vijay and I discussed the legacies of the Cold War from the vantage point of the Global South to contextualise the global economic, political and ecological crises that we are struggling through today. Vijay, it's really wonderful to be talking to you today. One of the things that I really appreciated when I was reading Red Star over the Third World was your... um, you kept emphasising the scepticism of economism, of this idea that just building trade unions and assuming that the industrial worker would be the engine of history, it's not enough. And it made me think about something that Robin Kelly said a few weeks ago at the socialism conference in the States. He said that socialism is a moral, spiritual, ethical project that predates capitalism. And I feel like that is potentially a daunting thing to hear, but I also feel like it's a way more attractive prospect than some of the ways we sometimes think about socialism being construed. And I read that in your work, this idea that socialism is about the whole of humanity. It's not a purely economistic thing. Um, So I wanted to start by saying that I appreciated that. And then I wanted to begin at the Cold War. So the dominant narrative on the Cold War, at least in the global north, is that it was a conflict between the West and the Soviet Union. And in that narrative, the strategic positioning and resources and resistance of the global South, all of that is often an afterthought at best. So could you maybe talk about the role that the nations of the global South played in the Cold War, and in particular, how imperialism and communism shaped their positions? Well, it's great to be with you. And it is true, of course, that socialism is for the whole of humanity because capitalism is wrecking humanity and nature. And, you know, capitalism doesn't just wreck the production process, it wrecks the whole world. So that's absolutely true. It's also true that when the October Revolution took place in 1917, it put forward quite a strong rebuke to the idea that capitalism was basically going to be eternal and permanent. Here was a new dispensation created in the old Tsarist empire, which basically in a very short period of time said simple things like those who work on the earth and work on it with you know their blood and sweat and their uh, life, uh, they should bear the fruits of what they produce. Uh, not necessarily in individual wages, let's not just create a world of individuals, 
but through collective wages. You know, let's improve education systems. Let's have literacy campaigns. Let's have libraries in rural areas and so on. Let's improve the culture of people because the point of being alive isn't to work. The point of being alive is to be alive, to enjoy, you know, your community, your family, your friends, uh, to build your culture and so on, not just to keep producing for somebody else. And the fact of the socialist experiment in the Soviet Union was so considerable that it inspired people across the world. You know, it made people feel like, well, you know, what we have now is not permanent. I can't say this enough, this idea of permanence being shattered. Uh, look at it today when people feel there's no hope, there's no alternatives. You know, we're sitting and talking and somewhere in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, behind barricaded walls, the leaders of the world are meeting and a handful of them, the most powerful countries, are basically disregarding the fact that, you know, humanity is being plunged over an abyss, taking nature with it. There seems to be no possibility of any other future, you know. The Economist had a cover that said, goodbye 1.5 degrees. Well, wow, you know, um, isn't there any other possibility? Well, so that was a standing rebuke, you know, the Soviet experiment. And it inspired people in the third world a great deal. So when World War II ended and many new countries emerged, you know, in a post-colonial phase, whether it's India, Pakistan, Indonesia, Ghana, then, of course, Cuba with the Cuban Revolution in 1959, they took inspiration not from the capitalist West, but from the Soviet East. And they basically felt that, well, you know, we are going to create our own various forms of socialism, call it African socialism or call it, you know, the socialism that was experimented with in China and so on. We're going to do our own thing. Well, in fact, that became the place where Western countries were most convulsed, you know, when the post-colonial states, the African and Asian states met in Bandung, Indonesia in 1955, just 10 years after the war had ended. It was not the Soviets who complained about that. It was the United States. John Foster Dulles, you know, the U.S. president as well, said that, well, you know, these people aren't third worldists. They are not even there for, you know, non-alignment. They are neutralists. That was the term they used, suggesting that they are being duped by the Soviet Union. So the Cold War period was much more complicated than merely the, you know, tension between, let's say, the West and the East, East being um, the Soviet bloc. It was much more than that. The real battlefield in the Cold War era, which by now I think has been pretty much accepted, the real battlefield was in the continents of Africa, Asia, Latin America. That's where the coups were conducted in Iran in 1953, Guatemala 1954, Chile in 1973. That's where the coups were conducted. That's where the dirty wars were fought, whether it's the horrible war against the Vietnamese people that lasted from 1945 to 1975, or the wars in Central America, or indeed the Western backing for the apartheid regime in South Africa, which continued my goodness, all the way into the 1990s. That's where the real Cold War was fought. You know, it, it wasn't fought at the fault line inside Europe. It was once again taken into, in a sense, the darker nations. Absolutely. And you touched on um, this idea of positive neutralism. And Stuart Hall in Familiar Stranger writes about the formation of what he called the new left in the teeth of 
Soviet tanks rolling into Hungary and Western nations' intervention in the Suez Crisis or production of the Suez Crisis. And Stuart writes about a hope that third world leaders such as Nehru, Nkrumah Sukarno and Nasser would create the power to constitute a third force in global politics. And he then goes on to lament the fact that that positive neutralism, at least in his view, came to grief on the rocks of the remorseless politics of international polarisation, on the nuclear arms race, as well as on the conflicts within the decolonisation movements themselves, despite or because of their struggles to build one nation, one party. And he talks about the fact that the new left perhaps didn't foresee at all how the global imperatives of the Cold War would overwhelm all the liberatory promise of decolonization. Most of that is a quotation. And so I wonder if you could say some more about the impact that the Cold War had on the decolonial struggle that predated and coexisted with it. And how does that impact manifest in the world that we live in now? It's interesting listening to you read that Stuart Hall section because I can see the kind of disappointment in the language. And, you know, that's a very powerful quotation. But I think it misses a lot. Let's first acknowledge the fact that when it starts, you know, this process begins of national liberation, when it begins with the October Revolution, because I actually see the revolt against the Tsarist Empire to be part of the kind of national liberation epoch. You know, all the countries that eventually had revolutions, all of them came from extraordinarily poor parts of the world. There was no revolution that succeeded in Germany that was crushed in 1919, a country where the productive forces, as Marx had foreseen, were very well developed. There was no revolution in Britain. There was no revolution in the United States. There was no revolution in Canada. You know, in the richer parts of the world, well, the whiter parts of the world, there was no revolution. Revolutions took place in very poor countries. Um, in the Tsarist Empire, they took place in, in China, extraordinarily poor. You know, China had a World War II that was much longer than the World War II experienced in Europe. It starts in 1937 at the Marco Polo Bridge incident and goes all the way till 1949. That's 12 years of a ghastly World War II, which included a civil war. Um, Europe's war was much shorter, 1939 to 1945. Imagine the cataclysm of Europe's Second World War and then look at the double length in China. Then you had the revolution in Vietnam, 1945, a country that had had its wealth sapped by the French, that had been devastated by Japanese colonialism and the war against Japan. We had a revolution then taking place in countries that were all extraordinarily poor. You know, even India. India, the literacy rate, when the British were ejected from India, the literacy rate after 300 years of colonialism was 13%. You know, for God's sake... We need to understand that these countries had had their wealth sapped, they had their human development destroyed, and right after they attained some measure of independence, the imperialist powers didn't stop trying to destabilize them. You know, in, for instance, Kerala, in 1957, a communist government gets elected, and almost immediately, the Central Intelligence Agency starts a campaign working with the Catholic Church to destabilize the government, which was removed in 1959. Um, another one of those coups of that period. 
So as a consequence of the poverty, as a consequence of the lack of resources, as a consequence of the consistent attempt to overthrow these governments, no wonder they had to move to, let's say, one-party rule, or no wonder they were extraordinarily defensive and so on. You know, you can't build socialism, or you can't build anything out of a promise. You can't build things out of ideals. You have to build things where you are. You have to look at the actual movement of history, not the promise of history. So, you know, I read Stuart's statement there, and it's a beautiful statement and well put together, but I'm disappointed with it because I think it doesn't acknowledge how appalling it was for countries to try to build their own processes, getting strangled, if not by coup d'etats, then by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. No room for maneuver, no resources to count on. Um, it's extraordinary when we think of Britain, for instance, after the 1940s and 50s. You know, British people have no memory of how Britain sapped the colonial parts of the world of their wealth. You know, tens of trillions of sterling taken out of India during the colonial period. And then when countries attempted to decolonize, look at what the British did in Kenya. The emergency campaign in Malaya, brutal killing of people, concentration camps set up to put the Mau Mau into, you know, basically indefinite detention and so on. Um, it's tiring sometimes, Gracie. It's tiring to see how Britain has basically created amnesia about what it did to these parts of the world. And then Britain was able to turn around and say, well, where's your democracy now? You know, as if having stolen everything from somebody, having stolen even their ability to educate themselves, you then turn around and are sanctimonious toward them. So I would caution people about trying to look not at the promise of these movements alone, but also the real movement of history, which is much uglier and has to be dealt with. You know, we have to deal with the fact that history is a really ugly process towards perhaps, perhaps, and that's where we struggle, towards something beautiful. But it's not a beautiful process itself. It not, it's not itself something sublime. No, no, of course. And I mean, as I read Red Star of the Third World, as I read Familiar Stranger, you know, I could see the divergences between the two of you potentially, um, which is why I wanted to, to see what you made of that characterization and your responses, I think very fair and very interesting. And I suppose speaking about the kind of ugliness and... Um, yeah, building from where we are and not from ideals. I wanted to talk a little bit about the nation state. And I suppose, actually, I wanted to ask you some things that I've been asked because I found these questions quite challenging and I'm still thinking them through. So I ask these questions in the knowledge that I don't think that there's a particularly easy answer. So you've talked elsewhere about imperialism being the attempt to suffocate other countries and prevent them from rising up imperialism as essentially a denial of sovereignty, lots of different kinds of sovereignty to certain peoples. And so obviously sovereignty is a key preoccupation of anti-imperial and anti-colonial thought and action. And as, as we just spoke about, Luke de Narona and I have just published our book Against Borders, which is making an abolitionist argument for the end of the nation state. And I think we can't necessarily equate, well, we can't at all equate today's progressive nationalisms, so-called progressive nationalisms, with the anti-colonial nationalisms of the 20th century. 
And we also can't equate present day nationalisms in the global north with those in the global south. Some are less easily dismissed than others. I think that, you know, right wing nativisms and nationalisms we can dispense with easily. But I wonder what role do you think the nation state form should have in a transformative socialist politics, if any? And um, how do efforts to transcend or undo nations interact with calls for the freedom of the Palestinian people, for example, or land back movements for indigenous sovereignty? Well, this is very interesting because, again, you know, we are stuck with a concept which is rather abstract and general. But we, of course, have to deal with the particular. And, you know, there's a different situation, different set of political forces, say, in the UK, which is at work around questions of refugees and immigrants and, you know, aftermath of the kind of jingoism that pervaded the island around Brexit, this fear that, well, you know, it's not capitalism that's ruined my livelihood. It's not capitalism that devastated Sheffield, you know, the globalization tendencies and so on. But it's the migrant that came from Europe. Um, those jingoisms, false narratives of reality, in fact, create their own kind of dilemma. So in the UK, for instance, calls for nationalism will certainly, in that political circumstance, always tend to something like the right. Unless the nationalism talks not about, you know, a false diagnosis of reality, but acknowledges the fact that, hey, listen, the least patriotic people in the UK aren't the migrants, it's the billionaires who are taking the money and putting it in illicit tax havens, who are basically lifting rents in the city of London, gouging people of their minimal wealth, you know, that are taking the factories that they had in the Midlands area, shutting them down, uh, selling that land for real estate, converting that money into liquid capital, again, taking it away to illicit tax havens. I mean, how are these people patriotic? But these are the very people who then fund some right-wing outfits that go out there and beat up migrants. So that's a certain context in which nationalism has to be understood. Of course, the Palestinian context is quite different because there... It's a people under occupation that are trying to, in some senses, understand what is their position in the world. You know, let's say you talk to 10 Palestinians in the West Bank inside 1948 Israel, um, in Gaza, in the diaspora. I talk to 10 people. You'll get 10 different opinions of how they anticipate the future. Some will want an independent Palestine. Others believe that, no, Israel should be disbanded and the whole region should be Palestine. And a third set might say, well, look, you know, let's create a kind of Israel slash Palestine, a kind of condominium state of all peoples, because now uh, Palestine itself is no longer possible. This is not, for instance, the 1950s. We are in a different era. So, you know, each context is going to have a different relationship to questions of sovereignty, nationalism and so on, based on their kind of sociological situation, but also the kind of conjuncture, the exact moment in which we're living in. To my mind, for instance, the general concept of nationalism is not as interesting as the general concept of sovereignty. I think sovereignty is interesting because people seek to have one way or the other, some form of being able to articulate their dreams, their imaginations, their hopes, 
uh, they would like to find the resources to put those hopes into reality. Well, you know, we know the negative sovereignty. We know what that looks like. Cuba is a great example of that. You know, Cuba isn't compromising the sovereignty of the United States. Cuba, after all, is an island of only 11 million people. United States has got over 300 million people, a much larger population, greater gross domestic product, an enormous military and so on. Cuba doesn't threaten anybody. And yet the United States has decided for the past you know, six decades to suffocate Cuban sovereignty. Well, look, the whole world understands what negative sovereignty is because every year for the past 30 years, the majority of the countries at the United Nations have voted asking the United States to end their unilateral blockade on Cuba. That vote, by the way, is non-binding because it's not the UN that conducts the sanctions. So everybody understands what negative sovereignty looks like. You want negative sovereignty? Open the dictionary and you'll see the U.S. unilateral blockade on Cuba. We understand that. It's the question of positive nationalism. There you need to have a much more contextual, I think, assessment. It's very difficult right now, given the kind of multiplicities of nationalism. It's very difficult to have a general theory. But I would say that to my mind, the most dangerous forms of nationalism that have emerged in our period are nationalisms that are rooted in exclusionary thinking, whether it's around religion, like in India, or it's around ethnicity, like in Israel, and so on. In fact, you know, these are the most dangerous kind of nationalisms. UK is interesting. In the UK, it's a kind of combination of vicious forms of ethno-nationalism, you know, the kind of England first attitude, but also there's a kind of cultural nationalism, you know, and I mean this in a specific way. There's a way in which people think, well, we are more civilized than other people, you know, and this can go in all kinds of directions. You can get a kind of pinkwashing, you know, the UK has certain cultures that make it more advanced than other countries, you know, you can be free if you're gay, lesbian, LGBTQ, and so on. Other countries are lower on the civilizational scale. We don't want those barbarians to come in. There's a way in which this kind of civilizational superiority, which is not necessarily rooted in ethno-nationalism, is emerging around the world. I find that very dangerous and, and very disturbing because it's a kind of nationalism against the poor. So just to put this together, I think sovereignty, at least the negative side of sovereignty, is, is an obvious thing for people. I think it's much more complicated nowadays when we consider nationalism because nationalism and patriotism have been corrupted in a way uh, by a false narrative of how the world is actually impoverishing people. Uh, people are blaming immigrants. My God, the last people that are impoverishing you are immigrants and asylum seekers. Absolutely. So I think you may be... Um... I'm still thinking through what a non-exclusionary nationalism might look like. I feel very wary still of progressive nationalisms too, but I also, I could talk about nationalism all day and I'm not gonna make you do that with me, but I really appreciate that response. I wanted to talk a bit about culture um, because there's clearly an attentiveness to culture in your work at the heart of Stuart Hall's work. And one of the discussions that really delighted me in Red Star Over the Third World was your discussion of revolutionary art. You highlight the surrealist movement, the stridentist poets in Mexico, the street verse movement in China. And you make a point of emphasizing the radical politics of writers like Langston Hughes and Claude McKay. 
And I think it's in relation to one of Muhammad Iqbal's poems on Lenin, you write, here is the cadence of revolution, the anger at the world as it is, the hope that the fires of revolt will smash the state and produce a new order. I wondered if maybe you would talk about where in contemporary art you're seeing or hearing that cadence of revolution or other works that you found it in and why it's so important. See, you've asked the question really well and I, I really appreciate how you've put it because these are such different moments in a way. During a revolutionary process of a socialist kind, one of the key aspects in all revolutions from the Soviet revolution in 1917 to the Afghan revolution in 1978, and this might be surprising to people who are listening to us, Gracie, because people don't think of the Saur revolution in Afghanistan as part of this, but in all these revolutionary experiences, socialist revolutionary experiences, literacy campaigns were at the root of them. You know, after the Saur revolution, thousands of young cadre from Kabul, from Mazar-e-Sharif, from Jalalabad, went out into the countryside to basically create a literacy movement in Afghanistan. And they were the first people who began to be assassinated by the U.S. and Saudi-backed Mujahideen coming across the border from Pakistan. Young men and women who went very much with the great hope that they would be able to lift their country out of what they considered the abyss of medievalism. You know, that's how they saw it. Same in the, in the early Soviet Republic. Young people, young Bolsheviks went out into the countryside, you know, built libraries in rural areas, held study circles, the great Lisbeth movement, the literacy campaigns and so on. Um, culture was rooted in the imperative of literacy, which is why so much of the cultural efflorescence in the early years of a socialist revolution are around creating mass culture. And there, there becomes an immediate sense of this. You know, you've got to do wall paintings. You've got to write poems that you can go and recite in a trade union meeting. You've got to make films that the people can watch. You've got to do ballet, which is free for the people and so on. You know, the texts that one reads from some of the central figures here, they're so revealing about their interest, not in creating what I guess in a capitalist sense would be called either high culture or low culture, but creating people's culture, the divide between high culture and low culture was purposely, um, you know, suspended in a way, trying to attempt to create a kind of people's culture, which is why I was very interested to see in Krupskaya's writings, Krupskaya being one of the leading thinkers on literacy and education inside the early Soviet Republic, Krupskaya writes about how when she would go to some of these meetings, particularly of women in the uh, women's movement, but also in the trade union movement, the women after the revolution spoke in much louder voices. They were much more confident. I've read in Cuba, for instance, after the revolution, uh, people who had a habit of hunching their shoulders now stood upright. In fact, it's so interesting how Thomas Sankara, after the Burkinabe revolution in 1983, changes the name of Burkina Faso from Upper Volta, uh, which is a ridiculous colonial name, 
to the name Burkina Faso, beautiful name. It means land of upright people, standing upright, not hunched down, not, you know, subordinate in language. Look at how old medieval languages worked. In, you know, you may know that in French, for instance, you have a different way of talking to superiors, vous, and then a different way of talking to inferiors, too. It's the same in many of our languages. In, in Indian languages, you've got three or four different hierarchical forms of addressing people. All this was to be shattered. And that's the kind of culture that I was interested in, this kind of idea of creating a people's culture where you bring, as it were, uh, the imagination and you can enliven people's imagination with street theater and so on. See, today, you don't have this commitment to mass literacy in a way, this commitment to transforming the totality of culture. So you've got, let's say, you know, um, subcultures that have developed. You know, maybe there's a kind of socialist subculture of art, but that's a completely different situation than smashing the idea of high or low culture and creating a people's culture. You know, you're going to have to wait till revolutionary developments accelerate to a certain place. But I want to tell you that a few years ago, you know, I work with Leftward Books in, in Delhi, and we worked with publishers around the world to create the International Union of Left Publishers. A few years ago, we, on a lark, decided to set up something on February the 21st, which is the day of the publication of the Communist Manifesto. We called it Red Books Day. The first Red Books Day, people went into public places from South Korea all the way out to Chile and read books. At the first year, it was the Communist Manifesto in their own language. And we had hundreds of thousands of people join in the first year. This year, that is to say the first year after the pandemic, we had three quarter of a million people join uh, around the world. Uh, I was in Cuba recently talking to the Cuban journalists and Cuban art authors and publishers and so on. And they said in the year 2023, February 21st, they uh, want to get like five million Cubans involved in Red Books Day. You see, we're thinking of this project as something we're calling rescuing the collective life. Culture is not just about what an artist produces, you know, in, in their solitary moment. It's not just what somebody first consumes as an individual. A culture in that kind of socialist sense is about rescuing the collective life. And we are very far away from those experiences of an earlier period, but we have to try to recover it. And so this rescuing the collective life, in my opinion, Gracie, it's a key part of I think the agenda of all culture makers today, we need to get together and think seriously, not about solitary production of culture for solitary consumption, because basically that's a capitalist form of culture. We've got to think of more collective projects for collective consumption. Yeah, I know you can't see me, but I'm basically sitting here nodding away. I mean, yeah, what an amazing invitation. I wanted to move us on to discuss I mean, it's COP right now. I wanted to talk about climate catastrophe. There's a lot that I could say about it. I mean, we're having this conversation against a backdrop of catastrophe, of rising food and water insecurity, ecological displacement, multiple energy crises, and also increasingly, though, confrontational activism. In your view, I wonder, what does an internationalist socialist response to the climate crisis look like? How do we build it or how do we support what is already being done? And of course, that answer may well be different for 
you know, it's not going to be the same for all people in all places, but maybe aspects of it of it will chime together. Well, you know, during the what was known as the Great Depression in the 1930s, Langston Hughes, the great American poet, had something quite funny to say. Funny, but it's bittersweet in the funniness. He said, look, you know, there's a depression, I gather. But for black folk, he said, we have always been in a depression. I remember reading that line and thinking, wow, that's a stunning insight. Because he's also pointing out that, you know, Yes, maybe there are business cycles. Maybe capitalism does have business cycles. Kondratiev is right. You know, you can see it. There's the crisis in 1873, crisis in 1929 into the 30s. You know, there are periodic crises of capitalism. But for large numbers of people around the world who are living in a kind of permanent despair of hunger, of illiteracy, of the inability to access proper health care and so on, uh, what is the business cycle? It's meaningless for them. You know, maybe things get slightly worse, but they certainly don't get better during the time of the upswing. And I think we need to bring that insight into our present. You know, there's a lot of hue and cry about the catastrophe. What's going to happen to the world in the future? You know, we're going to have rising sea levels and so on. Rising sea levels in the future, you know, the United Nations numbers are pretty stark, Gracie. About 3 billion people are estimated to live in hunger today. You know, you tell those kids, hey kids, you have no future. I mean, they're going to look at you and say, what are you talking about? My family has had no past. We don't have a present. And you're telling me that we may not have a future. I mean, what life are we living now? You know, uh, so I would put that on the table. You know, for people who are talking about extinction and so on, um, there are... Billions of people who live on the threshold of extinction today, you know, uh, where child mortality rates are extraordinarily high, where people are just not being able to survive today in a way that they would like to survive. Their levels of leisure and culture are minimal. You know, they don't get access to free time. Uh, I once went on a journey with some women from rural India. Uh, we woke up at about, I don't know, 3.30 in the morning. They hastily made food. Then they walked several kilometers to the railhead. By about five o'clock in the morning, the train arrived. They got on the train, hour and a half on the train. They sort of slept on each other. It was an incredibly crowded train. Got to the destination. At the destination, they waited for day laborers to pick them to work for the day, 10-hour day. Then back on, if they got picked, if they were lucky to get picked to do horrendous work, Back on the train, hour and a half, again, several kilometers of walk. It's already dark. They come home. The children are asleep when they leave. They're asleep when they come back. They kind of kiss them on the head and they collapse on their beds. Now, you tell me, how do I tell that person, listen, the world, you know, is experiencing climate change. You might find your life made extinct. They don't have a life, frankly, you know. Uh, they are basically living to survive. Uh, they are living in what Marx called the realm of necessity. And I think that people who are climate campaigners in the North need to really clue into this, that, you know, you can't build the kind of movements we need to build unless we build movements around the compelling immediate problems that 
billions of people are facing today. You know, you can't say, well, why is there no big climate movement in India, for instance? Because in India, the movements around survival, the movements are around preventing farmers from becoming Uberized, for instance, a major farmer struggle. You know, hundreds of millions of farmers participated over a year against the government in that struggle. Now, is that also a climate struggle? In my mind, it is. They are fighting against the Uberization of agriculture, which would bring in much more agrotoxic kind of inputs into the land and so on. They are fighting on behalf of their own existence. It was an existential struggle, but they're also fighting in defense of the earth. Um, so we have to see that there are billions of people fighting in defense of the earth, whether it's in Bolivia or it's the Indian farmers and so on. There's a kind of arrogance that has steeped into northern climate movements where people say, look, you know, we are the only ones trying to fight to defend the earth. That's not true. It's just that you're not seeing the actual struggles that people are in the midst of, their existential struggles. You're not seeing that as also struggles to defend nature. Uh, you're not seeing that because they don't have posters up about COP27 and they may not use the word climate or the word extinction. But in fact, that's exactly what they're doing. So in that sense, I think there needs to be a greater generosity of spirit. There are billions of people in struggle. I spent several weeks in Brazil during the election campaign for Lula. One of the key issues in the Lula campaign and being pushed by the landless workers movement, you know, one of the most important um, popular movements in the world, the landless worker movement, one of the most key things they put is against agrotoxic inputs in agriculture and also defense of the Amazon. Now, they are fighting day and night to defend their settlements, their encampments, to defend the Amazon. They are very much frontline fighters to defend nature, to defend humanity. But again, they have different symbols that they carry. Um, but I take great pride in the fact that there are human beings who have nothing in their pocket, who are saying, I am going to defend the earth against you, who have so much money and yet no time to make sure that the planet is defended. Instead, you're using that social wealth to build spacecraft so that you can escape to the next planet. I don't think that all of the listeners of this podcast will be in the global north, but I think a big chunk of them will be. And I suppose distinct from not being chauvinist about who is already doing climate work and also what work needs to be done that isn't climate work and so on, distinct from the conceptual stuff, I suppose, what does practical solidarity from activists in the global north look like? Well, I mean, we don't even need to have a discussion about this because the principal issues are two, I think, um, and, and they have been agreed by treaty. Number one is there are treaty obligations that the richer countries, the former colonial masters and so on have, and that is to contribute towards the climate fund. You know, this is a treaty obligation. Oxfam just released a very important document which showed that the numbers thrown around are false numbers because a lot of the so-called uh, contributions to the climate fund are actually in the way of loans and they're tied loans as well. You know, we'll give you money, but you have to buy our technology, which is not really a loan. You know, it's not even a mitigation fund. It's actually a way to recycle profits from the north. 
So there are treaty obligations. Live up to your own treaty obligations or walk out of the treaty. Let's tear up the Kyoto Protocol. Let's tear up the Paris Agreement. Don't sit on the Paris Agreement and not come up to your own obligation. Let's destroy it. You made a treaty obligation in Rio, for instance, in 1992, which acknowledged that there were so-called common and differentiated responsibilities. You know, the common responsibility is the world is going to destroy because we are in a sense, all in one, we are in one spaceship, let's put it like that, uh, in honor of Elon Musk, we are all on one, one planet. Uh, so we have a common responsibility, but we have differentiated responsibilities. You know, the advanced countries, Europe, the United States, Canada, and so on, they've used up exponentially more of the carbon budget than any of the other countries in the world. So those are the differentiated responsibilities. That's a treaty obligation. One is live up to your treaty. The second thing is think seriously about the consumption patterns, which are insane. You know, I, I find the way we live insane. You know, now people are saying, well, look, I want an electric car. Why do you want a car? Why don't we create more public transportation? Let's get rid of private transportation. You know, as the United States has become the kind of global model for the culture of the world, every country in the world, every middle class person wants to live like somebody in the United States. That's ridiculous. You know, we can't do it. For years, we've been saying it will require 9, 10, 15 planets for everybody on the planet to live like somebody in the United States, a middle class person in the United States. Can't be done. People in the North need to reflect on how consumption patterns are absurd. Now, this doesn't mean you feel guilty and start recycling because, frankly, recycling is not going to save the planet. But got to build movements, friends, to stop private consumption and socialize some of the consumption patterns. You know, if you have more public transport and look at the UK, used to have a decent public transport system, gutted it all by privatization. You know, instead of building more roadways, having more electric cars even on the roads, build better high-speed rail, more trains, more space on the trains. It's a much better use of energy than private cars. That's just one example. There are many like that. You know, instead of detached homes, for instance, build more congested housing, build more buildings. There's enough research that shows that building in one place more densely populated might be better than building sprawling landscapes of detached homes, you know. I mean, we've got to rethink how we live on the planet. And that's something that the North has to consider, not because the North in that sense is more responsible or whatever, but because you are then feed feeding the rest of the world with cultural models, you know, I mean... All the Hollywood movies that go out there show people what it means to be a modern person. Well, modern person means you have a detached house, you have five or six cars, you have eight television sets in your house. I mean, that's an insane form of consumption and that cannot be scaled to the whole planet. So one, I would say, yes, you want solidarity. First, meet your treaty obligations. Put pressure on your governments to essentially live up to the obligations they have made. They have signed them. It's not wishful thinking. It's an obligation. And secondly, have a real discussion about consumption patterns, more socialized consumption, less private consumption. That's an extremely useful response. Thank you. So this is my final question. There is a deeply, well, I found it very moving passage in Red Star Over the Third World where you talk about an action that you were part of in 1992 
Um, in response to a fascist destruction of a mosque in India, you responded to a call by the left front to form a human chain. And you describe really vividly this feeling of being hand in hand with strangers, making not just another world, but a socialist world of fellowship and care. And I wondered what other actions or movements you've been part of that have made you feel that way, that you carry with you? Well, that's a lovely question. And I mean, I we could spend hours on this, uh, Gracie, because <laughs> firstly, I'm easily moved by things. So that's a problem. And I'm quick to cry. That's also a problem. So, <laughs> you know, th that event actually really did have an impact on me because you know, after the mosque was destroyed in the town of Ayodhya, this is the mosque called the Babri Masjid, the mosque made during the time of the Mughal Emperor Babur in the 16th century. Uh, it was destroyed in an afternoon in plain sight. There were politicians standing on a dais, the police were standing by, and these fascistic people went up there and just smashed up the mosque. It was a hugely uh, devastating moment for India's modern history. Uh, after that, there were riots all over the country, you know, and people were being killed in kind of pogroms against Muslim populations and so on. And there was a sense of futility and a sense that, well, look, you know, this is what the world is going to be. We're all going to be, in a sense, prey of these forces of, you know, fascistic violence of one kind or the other. The kind of unity between um, big capital and fascism is now returning to the world after having been beaten um, in an earlier period. That's what it felt like. And when the left front government, which was then in power in West Bengal, gave a call for this, I was very excited. You know, I went from Delhi for it, took the train and stood at uh, Hazra Moor, which is a very significant intersection in the city of Calcutta on the street known as Charangi, held hands with people again who I didn't know. And we went from the northernest part of uh, West Bengal, right down from Darjeeling uh, into the Duars, Alipur Duars areas, across the extraordinarily fertile lands of, of Bengal to the city of Calcutta and then all the way down to the Bay of Bengal uh, into the delta regions of the Sundarbans. People held hands, you know, along thousands of kilometers. It, it was an incredible feeling that I felt that we have built, in a sense, a chain that's going to surround fascism and say, no, you will not pass. You will not pass. The old slogan of the Spanish, no pasaran, it felt profoundly moving, you know. And I want every young person to have that experience at least once in their life, if not more often, you know. At least once in their life to be able to say, I stood there and I said, you will not pass. That shapes you. It gives you a kind of courage to continue through the rest of your life. You know, we as people who want to improve things in the world, um, we don't just get our ideas from reading books, you know. Um, I didn't become a Marxist by reading Marx. I became a Marxist by getting involved in the student movement. Much later, I read Marx and all, all these other books, you know. I entered politics by getting involved in struggles, by going out there, building fellowship with people, um, getting involved with them, trying desperately to understand what some of the older people were saying when they talked about, you know, how you had to be patient. And, you know, I, I was not patient. I wanted to go and have a rumble with the police. But they were like, you have to be patient. We've got to build the confidence of people. Um, you, you can't go out there ahead of where people are. You know, we've got to build the capacity of, of people. We've got to go out there and have, you know, take classes, explain to people what's happening in the world, let them argue with us. 
build the capacity and confidence of people. Didn't understand that at all. I learned that. In fact, to me, that's the essence of Marxism. The essence of Marxism isn't Capital Volume 1. The essence of Marxism is coming to terms with the fact that we have to make our ideas the mass ideas. The ideas have to be gripped by the people. You know, um, when Marx and Engels write that ideas have to become a material force, I was learning that before I even learned that sentence, you know. And these experiences of holding hands with people saying, no pasaran, that steals you. That makes you feel like, listen, I'm not going to give up, you know, in a minute. Uh, we, we'll have many defeats. Uh, Engels said that history moves in zigs and zags. It doesn't move in a straight line. You've got to be prepared for the zag. You've got to build that kind of strength, you know, that commitment and so on. That's what I learned in the struggle. And I very much hope that all young people have that experience so that they too will understand that activism or trying to change the world isn't some folly of your youth, but it's a commitment you carry through your entire life. Well, that is a really beautiful place for us to call this conversation to a close, Vijay. Thank you so much for your time and your energy and your incredibly expansive vision today. Thank you for listening to episode four of the Locating Legacies podcast on the Cold War. Join us for episode five, where I'll be speaking with my friend Sita Balani about the legacies of queer radicalism on contemporary class politics. Thanks and see you next time. Uh-huh.